0: Well, I tell you, this is going to be a special interview because I have the somewhat unusual experience of interviewing the person who actually used to produce the Beeson podcast, Betsy Childs Howard. Welcome back to the Beeson podcast, Betsy.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. George.
0: Now, you've written a brand new book, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I want... To begin, just maybe for those who don't know the wonderful Betsy Childs-Howard, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and you're not only a former employee at Beeson on the Beeson podcast and communications, but also a student here and a graduate. Say a little bit about that.
1: Yes, well, I came to work at Beeson in 2007. I decided I wanted to move back to my hometown, Birmingham, Alabama, and I'd heard great things about Beeson, so I applied a job there. And one of the perks of the job is that you can take classes for free. So I started taking classes for my own edification, One, primarily one semester, one class at a time. and loved it and loved the atmosphere at Beeson and my work. So I continued to take classes and also worked into the position of overseeing the communications. And we began the Beeson podcast. That was a large part of my job, as well as the Beeson Magazine, and the website. Uh, so the timing worked out really, really well that I was able to finish up my degree um, just around the time that I left Birmingham to get married and move to New York City. So I graduated with a Master of Arts in Theological Studies uh, in 2015, May of 2015.
0: Now, some of our listeners may be able to tell that we're speaking by telephone, and that's because you're in New York and not in Birmingham today. That's where you live. i want going to talk about all that in a minute, but I'd like for you to say a little bit about one of the particular ministries in which you're affiliated. You're presently working with the Gospel Coalition. Now, we know about the Gospel Coalition at Beeson. Colin Hanson, our, our friend and colleague, has an office here, and so we hear a lot about it. But from your angle and your particular assignment with the Gospel Coalition, tell us about that movement, what it is, and what you're doing with it.
1: Yes. So I am an editor with the Gospel Coalition, um, which is a network. It's a broadly reformed evangelical movement, and we we primarily do three things. We have events, such as conferences and regional training events. We have an annual—every other year, we have a national conference, and then on the off-year's We have a women's conference, which is coming up this year in June. So we do large events. We also have a website with new articles published five days a week. Uh, and we do print resources in conjunction with publishers, like curriculum and things like that. But then the third component is our international outreach. So we work to provide great theological resources for churches in countries that are not as well resourced as we are. So we work to support publishers overseas, um, we provide books and translation, good theological resources for pastors and lay people who want to better understand the gospel and lead their churches well. So those are, those are the three things that we do. I work on special projects. I now oversee the three podcasts of the gospel coalition, as well as working on, um, we're, we're coming out with a new curriculum based on the new city catechism and I'm overseeing that project.
0: Wonderful. And in case there are any listeners who are not familiar with the Gospel Coalition, we should let people know that Two of the leaders of this movement are Dr. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, and also Dr. Don Carson, who teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. There are only two. There are many others, but we associate their work with the Gospel Coalition.
1: Yes, they're the co-founders. And um Don Carson's our president, and Tim Keller's our vice president.
0: Now, I want to get to what you have written yourself. I think this is your first book, isn't it? That's correct. It's called Seasons of Waiting. And uh, in the beginning, you say I started writing this book after wrestling intensely with an unfulfilled desire for marriage. Can you share with us some of your own personal testimony about waiting and how it related to your uh, the fact of your singleness and your desire to be married and all of that? I, I I'll wa- be glad to. I want to get to your husband, by the way. We're not going to leave him out because you dedicated this book to him. But yes, t- tell us yes. about that experience before your marriage.
1: Well, I always thought I would like to be married. I didn't know if God wanted that for me. So I knew it was my desire, but I didn't know if it was a desire he was going to fulfill. And one of the hard things about anyone who's been single longer than they want to is you just don't know when or if the waiting is going to end. I thought I could, I could be very content if God told me I was never going to be married, but I didn't know that was what he wanted for me. So I tried, uh, to figure out what He wanted me to do with those desires. Did He want them to go away? Did He want to fulfill them? And I came to the conclusion that sometimes God chooses for us to live with unfulfilled desires. The fact that you have unfulfilled desires doesn't necessarily mean you have a lack of contentment in Him or that you're not doing something that you should do to fulfill those desires. One um thing in particular that I had trouble understanding was I knew that God had given us marriage as a picture of Christ and the church, and that this, the sacrament of marriage beautifully portrays a bride and a bridegroom, Christ and His church uh, becoming one. And I thought it didn't seem right that, as if I was going to be single for life, that God wouldn't let me also portray the gospel in my life. So I, I wrestled with that question for a long time, thinking, "Is there some way in which?" singleness, or either lifelong singleness or singleness for a period of time until you do marry, if that could also portray the gospel. And I realized a single person who longs to be married is a great portrayal of what the church should be as she waits on Christ as her bridegroom. And that gave me much more purpose in my singleness. It also helped me understand that I could live my life as a theological picture, and if God did bring me a husband, I would then become that picture of the bride waiting on the bridegroom and having that consummation. But if God never brought me a husband, I could live longing, watching, and hoping in the same way that the church should watch and hope for her eternal bridegroom. I could use my earthly circumstance to be a picture of an eternal reality. So those were those were the kind of wrestlings that leading me, led me into writing this book, and I realized that singleness really wasn't the only category of waiting that had this theological dimension
0: to it. And you deal in the book with a number of others. We'll mention those in a moment. But um, while we're still on the waiting for marriage, let me ask you a question. I don't think you really tackle this in the book, but I think our listeners would be interested. I'm interested to know what you would say about the whole phenomenon of dating. A lot of people who are trying to be married or want to be married or have unfulfilled desires to be married, think about dating. And uh in our culture, that may mean something very different than it did, say, some years ago or 100 years ago. What do you think about dating?
1: Yes, I think dating is the normal way in our society that we decide if someone is the right marriage partner for us. Now, there's wise dating and there's foolish dating, and there's lots of different things you can do to try to safeguard yourself to date wisely. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have people who say, we don't date, we only court. Well, there's still, there's still an aspect of getting to know someone. You may have more parental involvement. Um, on the other end of the spectrum would be very foolish dating where people basically act as if they're married when they're not. Um, I, I dated for many years. I, uh, didn't particularly enjoy dating. Um, it was, the, the purpose for me was always marriage. I, I don't believe in dating just to, um, just to date, I always think it's important to be thinking, is this someone I could marry? If not, I probably shouldn't get overly romantically involved with them. Now, at the same time, you don't want to load too much pressure onto a first date where you, it's all business like deciding if you could marry someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um So I, th- I think dating is just a fact of our society. You know, courting is great. If you move away from your family and you're in your 30s, the kind of courting that might have been realistic for a 16-year-old may not be realistic for a 35-year-old living in a different city than her parents. But I think you can still figure out a wise way to involve other people in your relationships and to have a godly dating life.
0: Now, I will dare to say that one of the reasons why you maybe didn't enjoy dating so much is that it was hard for you to find somebody that really was worthy of you, if I can put it that way. (laughs) You had pretty high (laughs) standards. And That's that, that,
1: very kind of you. And I, I always knew I didn't want to be married just to be married. It there there was a lot that that wasn't as wonderful about singleness. And it um I think it's important for single people to realize singleness is not something you should give up for just anyone. It really needs to be someone who can help you fulfill the the callings that God has given you and Him will really encourage you in your faith.
0: I've always loved this definition of marriage. I've used it, you know, when I've talked with people about to be married or help perform their wedding, that marriage is not just gazing into one another's eyes endlessly, uh, but it is walking together toward a common vision, hand in hand, heart in heart. And I think that's more the biblical understanding of what marriage is intended to be as a reflection of Jesus Christ and His, and yeah. His bride. Now, all Very this true. all this waiting for marriage did end for you, though, because you are married, and I think yeah. that's a fascinating story. Now, I want you to tell us a little bit about your husband, how you all met, and all the rest of it.
1: Well, the timing of it was really interesting because I was in conversations with Crossway, my publisher, about writing this book, and I planned to write it from the perspective of someone who's waiting in this aspect of marriage was not over, and then I met my husband. Our relationship moved pretty quickly, and I had to change the premise of the book a bit because by the time the book comes out, I will have been married just over a year. So um, I met my husband's name is Bernard Howard. He, at the time that we met, he was working for an Anglican church in New York City, and I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called "Should I Be Content with My Singleness?" It was actually the seed of what became this book. He read that article noticed I was single and really liked what I said. So he Googled my name, found my profile and picture on the VEASAN website, and he wrote me an email just thanking me for the article. He didn't say he was interested. But I read between the lines and wrote back, and we started a, a nice correspondence that um, we quickly realized we had a lot in common. And we um, we started Skyping. And after our first Skype, which lasted for about two hours, he asked if he could fly down to Alabama and take me on a date. And I was happy for him to do that. Again, we talked earlier about involving other people in your dating life. And so he stayed with some friends of mine and we actually introduced him to several of my friends because I didn't want to just be moving forward with this guy who nobody I knew had met. Um, but they all thought he was wonderful. So we continued to date long distance and got engaged in Thanksgiving of 2015 and, um, were married a year to the day that he first wrote it to
0: me when he read my article. is that great? That's a wonderful love story. And I will say that in that process, somewhere you were kind enough to introduce me to Bernard. And yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure I would like him because he, here's a person coming and taking away our wonderful Betsy, getting married. But, you know, I really did. He's a wonderful person. He's a godly man It comes clear to me, humble in his spirit, and really wants to serve Jesus Christ. So uh, I think you did well, and I know he did well. So that's a good success story about waiting and love.
1: Well, and, you know, I like that my story portrays that aspect of a bridegroom at the end of a long wait. But it's not as if marriage has taken away, you know, or has drastically changed my spiritual life. I'm the same person that I was as a single person but I am married, and I am just waiting in different ways. Mm. Now, I'm not waiting for marriage, but I'm waiting for many other things.
0: Of course. And in your book, um, Seasons of Waiting, you talk about some of these other areas of life where waiting uh, is to be expected. And I-, I wonder if you just kind of go through them. I-, I may have missed one, but there's marriage. There's the waiting for a child, babies, the waiting for prodigal son or daughter to come home, waiting for healing, maybe physical healing, emotional healing and then waiting for home. Say a little bit about these areas yeah. of life where waiting is integral.
1: So those are all areas that are powerful biblical themes. You have you have infertility running throughout the Bible and different people, God opening their womb. So you have lots of people waiting on a child in the same way that Israel was waiting on a Messiah. You have the people of Israel waiting for the promised land. And you have many people Jesus healed that have been waiting for healing for years. You have... The prodigal son, where you have the, the father waiting for his son to come home. You also have stories of what I call a prodigal spouse, like Hosea and his wife, where she leaves him and he waits for her return, and and even brings about her return. So those were all biblical stories that, that aren't just in one story, but they're found throughout the Bible. Yet at the same time, there are areas where believers are still waiting today. If you if you talk to a group of women. You could probably find someone who's waiting for each of those things, whether it's a rebellious child, whether it's someone who moves around all the time and and doesn't feel like they have home or, or the kind of stability that they want, whether it's someone who's dealing with a long illness or women waiting who would like marriage or like to have children. Those are all very deep emotional needs. So I wanted to pull together that current modern-day need with the biblical theme and also help people see how... In the same way I found theological purpose for my waiting, there's theological purpose and significance to these other kinds of waiting.
0: You know, you talk about a biblical theology of waiting, and that's one of the big themes of our school, Beeson Vinci School. We talk about the Bible as an interconnected, intratextual story of God's working with his people. And in a way, when you look at the Bible, salvation history is a history of one big waiting. The children yeah. of Israel waited, uh, and comes to c- conclusion with Simeon and Anna holding the the baby Jesus, but waiting for the consolation of Israel. And in a way, uh, Jesus has come. We know he's uh, died and risen from the dead. We're we're celebrating Easter tide, this season of the year, but um we're also waiting for him to come again, aren't we? So, you know, we we live in expectation and in hope and. Waiting is a part of our life in Christ.
1: That's exactly true. So, if we can look back and see how God has worked through salvation history. As you said, there's there's people who are waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah has come, but He will come again. And just as people like Samson's parents who waited for a child, Hannah waited for a child, and was given Samuel, they were they were foreshadows of the coming of the Messiah. We, in our life situations, our desires that are not yet fulfilled, when those desires become fulfilled in an earthly way, if God ends our waiting in an earthly way, we foreshadow what will happen when the Messiah comes again, and the, the new heavens and the new earth are the reality that we live in. So to have a biblical theology of waiting, you really must have an eternal perspective to realize Everything in this life should point to the life to come. And what we, any desires that aren't fulfilled in this life will and can be in the life, be fulfilled in the life to come when Christ returns.
0: You know, one of my favorite texts and passages in the Bible that deals with this theme that you've written about is in Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to read a few verses and maybe you can just give us a off-the-cuff commentary. I haven't told you I was going to do this, but okay. I think you can handle it. For I discover, Paul says here, the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits, there's your word, with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And so we wait, we, we groan with creation, Paul goes on to say, and we long to be fulfilled, we groan inwardly as we wait, there's that word again, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Talk
1: about that. That's so beautiful. And you know, the word groaning, the, the creation groans, we see around us when we have natural disasters and poverty and all sorts of things in our creation that are not as they should be. They point our gaze forward to when that groaning is over and when creation is restored and sin and death are no longer reigning on this earth. Uh And I think the the idea of groaning is something that should give us some comfort. Believers can feel guilty if they don't feel completely happy. You know, if, if they wish they were married or not, if they wish they had children, or they just, even if they wish they had a house instead of an apartment or something like that. So we should have we should seek contentment with what God has given us, but we can let our groanings for more point us to a life that is to come when we will be given more. We will be given a house with many rooms. We'll have all the people we love who've been born again in Christ there with us. So I think we should see our own groanings and our own unfulfilled longings as a, as something that points us ahead to the new creation when Jesus will make all things new. Mm
0: one of the titles of uh, one of the chapters in your book is sustained while we wait so how are how are believers sustained surely one of the ways is in prayer
1: Yes.
0: Uh, talk a little more about that
1: well the, the three primary ways um, the sort of obvious ways believers are sustained are through prayer through the scriptures which is, is our bread that feeds us and then through the fellowship of other believers so those are all things that should sustain us, whether we are waiting or not. But I think one key thing that we often overlook is that God sustains us with daily bread. He gives us what we need for each day. He doesn't necessarily give us what we need for a lifetime. So if it seems overwhelming, if, if you are diagnosed with an illness and it seems overwhelming to live for the rest of your life with that illness, the reason that's overwhelming is because God hasn't yet given you the grace for that. He's given you the grace. Be faithful today. So to do what you need to for your treatment, to seek healing, to seek godly living today, and then tomorrow, you seek that tomorrow. This is best pictured in the scriptures because when God's people were in the wilderness, He gave them manna day by day. He didn't give them more than enough. They had to trust Him each day. They went to bed trusting that He would give them bread tomorrow, but they didn't have that bread when they went to bed. So in the same way, when we try to follow God through a season of waiting, we need to concentrate on being faithful to do what God has given us to do today with the resources he's given us today. Mm, That's great. And that has helped me tremendously in various areas of waiting.
0: One more question. You say, as part of the concluding exhortation in your book, that as believers wait, they do so for the sake of the world and for the sake of the church. Uh, can you explain this just a little bit?
1: Yes. So um I'll take those in, in reverse order. We wait for the sake of the church by helping each other be sustained while we wait. We spur one another on towards love and good deeds. One way we can do that is being open and vulnerable about the things that we're waiting for, rather than pretending like our lives are exactly as we want them. If you share unmet desires, you might free someone else to share their unmet desires, and you can then pray for each other and support each other in those. We also can encourage each other to walk the path of godliness, even when all our desires haven't been fulfilled. For single people, this would be helping each other maintain sexual purity. Or um for people who are dealing with an illness, the body of Christ can come around them and help meet their physical needs so that they're sustained while they wait for healing, either in this life or healing through being given a restored body in the life to come. So we need to wait for the sake of the church by helping each other in our waiting and sharing our needs when we have them so that the body of Christ can meet those needs. We wait for the sake of the world by being living witnesses. When the world sees someone who suffers well or who lives with unmet desires, but yet has a a joyful heart in spite of those unmet desires, they see something that's not natural. When we tell unbelievers in our lives the things that we are waiting for, but yet trusting God with those hopes and recognizing that our true hope is in having those desires fulfilled eternally, the unbelievers around us are also pointed towards eternity. And, the, and they are reminded that as believers, we our hope is not in this life and this world. So I think the more we can wait well, the more we will draw unbelievers to wait for eternity with
0: us. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Betsy Childs Howard. She is an editor for the Gospel Coalition. She is the author of a new book, Seasons of Waiting, from Crossway Publishers. It's available on Amazon.com, I'm sure. So I encourage you to get it, to read it. It's a wonderful book that draws you closer to uh, your 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 Lord in 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 your life as you face these situations of waiting we all do, and Betsy is also married to the Reverend Bernard Howard, who is yeah. an Anglican minister in New York City. Betsy, we yeah. love you and we miss you and thank you for giving us this wonderful uh, conversation.
1: Thank you, I really enjoyed it.